This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. I am the host of the podcast Transformative Principal and the author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. Greetings. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I are teaming up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and privacy. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. All right, Jethro. So it is my pleasure to welcome to the show today, Adam Stone, who is a fellow privacy guru and uh, someone who is in that rare group of people who actually bought and read one of my books, for which I will be eternally (laughs) grateful. And uh, just to give you a quick introduction, uh, Adam is a skilled business leader with 20 plus years overseeing the implementation and development of data privacy and security innovations. Uh, He is a business development professional, and I love this description, with the spirit of an entrepreneur and the boundless enthusiasm of a Russell Terrier, which having known some Russell Terriers, I can really appreciate. He is Vice President Solutions Delivery and Chief Privacy Officer at TrustMap. He is also an adjunct professor at the University of Minnesota in the College of Continuing and Professional Studies, CCAPS, Health Services Management HSM program. Hey there, thanks for Adam, me. welcome to the show. Uh, it's a real pleasure. We were hoping that you could uh, kick us off with just a little bit of background, uh, maybe tell us how you get into the privacy field, a little about TrustMap, whatever works. Thank you very much. 
I've been in, uh, as you mentioned, I've been in this world now for over two decades and, and have really enjoyed it. I did not start out uh, in, a, in the world of IT, uh, nor did I uh, start out in the world of security or privacy. I started as a, as a humble accountant. Uh, I quickly moved out of the, and just as uh, I'll back up, uh, my first degree was in philosophy, uh, specifically ancient Greek philosophy. And so the natural transition uh, from that degree is into accounting. And so I just wanted to, I, I just wanted to, well, you know, for, for all those aspiring accountants out there, take philosophy, uh, focus on that and you'll be all good. Well, Adam, if I can just interject um, amongst our many overlaps, then I was a classics major in college, so. <laughs> well, as I mentioned, I did not start there, but I landed in this world about 20 plus years ago as two major laws were uh, recently passed at that time. One was called HIPAA, which uh, for folks that aren't aware uh, of what that means, that is a law that in part uh, addresses the issues of privacy and health information. And there was another law that was impactful called the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act or GLB, which in part discussed issues of privacy and security for the financial services world. Those two topics were new to most of the organizations that were impacted by it. And so I, like many others in the field, when I was thrown into it, I was uh, at ground zero. I had to learn everything from scratch. And so I did, and I methodically improved year over year and here I am at this point. I've had the opportunity to serve a number of different organizations of all sizes. Most of the roles that I've served have been in the leadership realm and in the policy realm, whether it's business policy and strategy or public policy, which uh, is an area that I really enjoy as well. Uh, I have a wide range of uh, experience across a number of domains in the world of uh, privacy, whether we're talking about privacy in the law, privacy in society, privacy in ethics, and related. Well, I definitely want to turn our attention to HIPAA because that's one of the topics that I had, I had come up with and figured you'd be a good person to ask. But I think just in general terms, it might help our listeners to understand a little bit more about the landscape of data privacy. So, so what role have you played? What, what are the issues that you've confronted in your work recently? Well, the, the issue du jour in the world of privacy has been the uh, increasing presence and pervasiveness, I would say, of uh, the globalization of privacy, especially when we start uh, talking about uh, global privacy regimes such as the, the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, which emerged out of the European Union. Uh, as we know, the United States takes a very different approach to uh, how it enshrines the uh, importance of privacy uh, for our society and as a matter of the law. And the European Union has, a, uh, has its own approach based on its own culture. However, now that we are in truly a global society where we are engaged in global commerce, GDPR is, is the issue that remains the du jour issue for privacy professionals across, uh, well, virtually any sort of organization, regardless of what they do or make. And that that's so fascinating to me because so many of the tools we use are global in nature, even if they're based in different countries, but they, they 
appeal to a to a broad audience. Um, I do want to talk about HIPAA, for example, especially in the context of the pandemic and how we are using the data that we get from that. You know, I haven't ever heard of so many people diagnosed so publicly with something as we have during COVID. And it was my impression that there were laws protecting people from disclosing contracting diseases and things like that. Where, where are we at with this? And are people oversharing with this? Or are they within the bounds that they should be? And because it's a public health issue, how do we manage that as well? That's a fantastic question. And I'll tell you that the answer is going to be different based on who you ask. Uh, what I mean by this is that if you ask governments, for instance, their goal is to protect the public and to safeguard public health in general. That said, they want as few barriers, the government that is, uh, wants as few barriers as, as they can muster to ensure that they are meeting that goal of serving the need of public health. What that means in COVID times is uh, that issues like contact tracing become a real hot issue. Issues, as you had mentioned, Jethro, about uh, the public pronouncements of people who uh, may or may not have contracted COVID and what their symptoms are and so on and so forth. There's, there's some interesting nuances to that because an individual who is not a medical professional, there's not necessarily a law that says that that individual cannot disclose publicly that another individual has symptoms uh, relating to, to COVID. Really what HIPAA does, if we're talking specifically about HIPAA and its effect on how we disclose information to the public, the folks that, that are impacted by HIPAA are only healthcare providers, health insurance providers, and so-called clearinghouses, which are those organizations that take all of this disparate data from various health organizations and uh, standardizes it to the best they, they can. Those organizations, uh, which in HIPAA world is called, are, they're called covered entities, they are not allowed to disclose issues relating to health about an individual. HIPAA says that pretty clearly. HIPAA says that if an organization, a health organization is inclined to disclose health information to the public or to anybody who's not the individual him or herself, that they need permission to do so. They need consent or in some cases, formal authorization, which is sort of a, uh, the next tier above consent, which is something more formal, almost contractual in nature where you have to sign a piece of paper usually. And that said, issues of health though, there are few restrictions for other sorts of entities or people with respect to how and when and to what degree they disclose health information about others or even themselves. There's very little that would, you know, by law, uh, stop somebody who's not a healthcare provider or not a covered entity to, you know, to, to make such a proclamation. A couple of pieces of this, Adam, are, are really fascinating for me. For starters, I'm curious to get your thoughts on whether or not the pandemic has revealed any challenges with respect to HIPAA, specifically uh, in terms of people getting sick quickly and family members not being able to get information about their condition or that kind of thing. And of course, we've seen all of these terrible stories about people 
you know, having to say goodbye via iPad and things like that. But I'm specifically interested because I have a couple of older parents and we, we think about this, you know, what, what we need to do in order to be able to uh, help with their care. So that's one piece. And then the other piece, because I'm a tech geek, as, as you well know, is that I've been fascinated by the various efforts to create COVID tracking apps. And for instance, I was just looking at the New York app, which I installed on my phone, and, and thinking about the, the hoops that they've had to jump through to comply with privacy when they do that, despite an overwhelming social need. So there's two topics for you right there. Those are what I would call bigger than a breadbasket issue issues, <laughs> but it is true. There is a balance that needs to be struck by uh, government officials because again, the government officials, their objective is to protect public health. And they're gonna uh, take whatever means necessary to do that within the law, of course. The issues that have arisen that I've observed since COVID has uh, emerged, obviously the contract tracing, which I'll get back to in a little bit, is a big one. But some of the issues within the healthcare industry that I've observed are specifically a, a need, uh, a demand by the healthcare sector to uh, allow for a wider interpretation of what it means to disclose health information and loosen to some degree the parameters by which a health care organization can disclose information to loved ones and so on and so forth. One of the challenges that people continue to have, even 20 plus years after HIPAA emerged as, a, as the prevailing uh, privacy law for healthcare organizations, is uh, the issue of interpretation. Uh, as a lawyer, I'm sure that, that uh, you are well aware that, that a law uh, unless it's written with extreme precision, which very few are, and the same goes with regulations, they're open to wide interpretation. As such, we have some healthcare organizations that interpret HIPAA one way, we have some that interpret it another way, and there uh, sometimes it's not daylight, or uh, there, there isn't a lot of daylight. The point is that organizations continue to interpret what HIPAA says or doesn't say in their own ways. This has happened in many circumstances well before COVID came up, even down to, we may recall that uh, for those of us who've been around this long, that when HIPAA first emerged, for instance, uh, pharmacies, I remember 20 years ago, pharmacies erected these barriers that said, HIPAA says you must stay six feet behind the next person so that when you're standing at the, the pharmacist's uh, counter, they can't hear what, what your conversation is. So HIPAA says, quote unquote, you have to do this. And of course, those of us who have been around HIPAA long enough know that HIPAA never said anything of the sort. But ironically, it was great training for COVID. So there you go. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> So it does, it, a lot of it does come down to inter interpretation. Now, what I will say is that uh, my observations are that the government uh, has reacted to the pleas of the healthcare sector. And specifically the Health and Human Services Department has taken steps to modify its rules to allow for uh, a little bit more flexibility 
when it comes to communicate with others, especially around that issue of disclosing an issue to loved ones or family, friends, other folks who need to know. But at the end of the day, it is incumbent upon the healthcare organizations themselves to interpret those laws appropriately, maintain the the core objectives of what HIPAA is trying to achieve from a privacy perspective, but address them within today's frame, which today's frame is an urgent one. It's a very urgent one. And uh, so we need to allow for some flexibility in this. And that's what the government has done recently is allowed for a little bit more flexibility in that interpretation so that organizations don't feel as constrained, I guess we could say, as they used to. Yeah. On that point, some of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately is that so many things have been disclosed through data breaches and other things like that, that am I crazy to think that I have any sense of privacy at this point? Because, you know, it's just one hacker incident away from it all being out there anyway. And it has happened to me personally so many times from my association with different companies that they've had my information exposed. So uh, how, how much of an expectation of privacy should a normal person have? Boy, that's a deep question. Uh, I will only speak to my knowledge of the culture within our country, the United States, because obviously this question will be answered differently if we're in different parts of the world. But generally speaking, within Western culture, my sense is that uh, we ought not take a nihilist view of privacy because of these breaches that occurred. Yes, they are terrible. And yes, they can embarrass us. They can endanger us. They can do all sorts of bad things uh, to our our health, our psyche, our job, our relationships, so on and so forth. That does not mean that we shouldn't continue to fight every day for privacy, because frankly, privacy is one of the key pillars, in my view, of a functioning democracy and of civil society generally. If we throw away privacy, we're really throwing away some of the key ideals of our form of government and uh, of civil society generally. Well, I think, Adam, actually, if you'll recall, one of the concepts that I was trying to put out with respect to American privacy gets to your point, which is that privacy is not a finite object that once lost is gone. That, That privacy is really more of a process, the ability to control the spread of your information and how it's used. And it is true, and this gets to Jethro's point, that there are pieces of information over which we lose control, right? I've had data breaches, we've all had data breaches, and that information is out there and our ability to control it is diminished. But when we get up in the morning, that does not mean that there are not things we can't control. We can continue to make choices about what information we put out into the world and how we do it and so forth. So one of the things I try to you know, particularly remind kids is that every single time you decide whether or not to make a social media post, you are making a conscious decision about how much privacy you want for that piece of information. And be aware information wants to be free. You remember, you're you're in the same age bracket. You surely remember Stuart Brand saying that. And ironically, he was saying the distribution of information wants to go to zero cost, but he overlooked the organic quality of information as well. 
So what are your thoughts? I'll tell you, every morning I make the conscious decision to put on my clothes. Why? Because I choose to keep my body somewhat private. I choose to not disclose my private parts to the public or even to my family. <laughs> uh, you know, so privacy takes on so many dimensions, whether we're talking about privacy of the mind, we're talking about solitude, we're talking about protection, we're talking about so many different perspectives of privacy. It really is built into uh, our humanity, in my view. But you're right. The children today, they do make conscious decisions. And I'll tell you something. My observations from my three kids is that they are incredibly savvy about how and when and to what degree they disclose any part of their private life to the rest of the world. The only thing that gets lost on kids periodically is that they don't think the long game. That's just part of being young, is that we don't think about the ramifications of our actions that's a, when we're young. Right. That's a prefrontal cortex problem, not... <laughs> <laughs> so it really is incumbent upon parents, and I have uh, taken this to heart, which is to uh, warn my kids to say, you know, look, social media all day long, if you'd like, I don't care. I'm not going to read your stuff. I trust you. However, do know that that stuff may come back to haunt you later. And if you're ready to face that, okay, fine. That the, and I'll tell you a lot of uh, a lot of the kids that I've observed uh, I observed today are actually they are uh, building a culture around this selective disclosure and non-disclosure of information. And they're incredibly savvy about it, much more savvy than us old people are. Oh, by far. And it's not uncommon. And Jethro may have practical experience about this in schools, but it's, it's increasingly not uncommon for kids to have three social media accounts on a given service. They'll have their kind of public one. They'll have the one their parents know about. And then they'll have their truly private one. And the public one is the one that gets put on college applications. <laughs> You know, so we we call this curating their social media presence. And I do think the kids are getting very sophisticated about it. The one breakdown that I consistently see is that kids are oftentimes deluded into thinking that things will disappear because software programmers tell them it will without realizing the myriad ways that that can be subverted. And so things that they think will not come back to bite them can still do so. I agree. And though I'm not going to give specifics, uh, I, my eldest son ha uh, suffered uh, that fate not too long ago. The only thing I can say, because, you know, I'm not in that age group, so I, I don't know all the dynamics, but it seems to me that the millennials and the folks that are in the younger age groups, they're building a culture around uh, this selective curation. The, the one breakdown that I see with that is that these kids are putting a lot of trust in private companies. They're making assumptions that if I put this, you know, whatever information into company X, that company X is going to follow through with its promises and not share with, with folks and not sell to folks and so on and so forth. And I find that really strange. I find that very strange. Now, I am not here to uh, suggest that we should entrust the government to do that. 
because frankly, there's there, neither option is 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 a good one. The unfortunate part, the, the unfortunate reality is that most of us don't have the sort of technical savvy to build a social media platform from scratch and start using it. So we have to rely on other people that are smarter than us uh, and use their stuff. But the amount of trust that kids seem to, and uh, not just kids, that users in general seem to put on private corporations is really quite astounding. And I don't know the answers behind it. Let me let me tell you that that is the perfect segue to our next topic, because this idea of trust in private corporations gets us directly to the protection of the data that we turn over. And we see story after story of people getting hacked. And, and let's be clear, hackers only have to be have to be correct once. You know, a corporation has to be correct all the time in terms of protecting data. That being said, there are clearly corporations that don't do patches to their software, don't install updates, et cetera, and so forth. So I guess the question I would have for you, and maybe this is putting you on the spot a bit, is should there be a duty of care to consumers in terms of the preservation and protection of data? Interesting question. I'm going to dance around it as best I can. I, I think that corporations make good efforts to make their products with the best amount of, or with the highest quality possible and with all uh, good faith in mind as they, as they release these products uh, that we're using mm -hmm. out to the marketplace. I hesitate to suggest that corporations need to be held fully accountable for their actions. And I'll say it, the reason I find difficulty in this is that Corporations also need the help of other entities to get their products out the door. It's not just that I go to Corporation A and everything that I use from Corporation A was built and is maintained by them. Corporation A needs to ask corporations X, Y, Z, and so on to help provide that service that the customer sees. And so the question of who bears ultimate responsibility I think the law is reasonably clear today that we, we, in general, we know who to sue if we are aggrieved. Uh, however, to try to make an organization absolutely fundamentally accountable for everything is a stretch. Well, and I think it's even a stretch to make them accountable for a lot of things, because what can we actually do to make them accountable besides resorting to a, a legal battle, which, you know, could be a drawn out and very expensive affair that, you know, many people would not be interested in pursuing. But I think that we can't necessarily blame them for saying this is what we do and then doing it. And that's, that's the piece where we like, you know, any social media, we curate connections with people and help them connect with each other. And then for us to lose our minds when that actually happens. And that's the challenging part of, of all of this. I don't have a great answer to that myself, but I mean, to think that we could, could hold them accountable for doing the thing they said they were going to do when it was fine, when, you know, the quote unquote bad people weren't congregating there, but now the bad people are there. Now it's, it's a huge problem. 
Well, this is clearly a debate that that takes us well beyond the scope of this particular podcast. And and as the only attorney on the call, I absolutely do not want to be out here kind of creating more work for my colleagues. Um, so let me ask you this though, because you have a level of expertise, Adam, that that would I think be helpful. We've heard a lot about the solar winds breach and and its implications for national security and so forth. And just as a little bit of background for our listeners, that breach became possible because the supplier of the solar wind software, which is used by thousands of government agencies and corporations around the world, um, itself was hacked. And the hackers managed to put malware into the updates that SolarWinds was distributing. So it actually, in an ironic follow-up to my previous question, a lot of these corporations did exactly what they were supposed to do, which was install the update. And in the process, they incorporated this vulnerability. So I, you know, we're not going to solve national security here, but I am curious to get your thoughts on what the implications might be and and what you think really the government should be doing to try to protect itself better. I agree with you that that is true. The 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 organizations that were using the SolarWinds product at the time that it was made vulnerable and then used to exploit data, these organizations didn't have any idea uh, what was happening. And it's it's really difficult to to try to blame these organizations for that that shortcoming within the SolarWinds software. Boy, the question about what government should be doing, that is such a difficult one because there's such a fine line, Fred, between enough versus too much. And my my concern is that every time the government tries to step in to solve a problem, quote unquote, the pendulum has a tendency to swing a little further than we'd like it to. And so for every security problem that we solve, it that takes a ding off uh, off of our privacy protections because we know that that you can have great security, but you'll have that at the cost of privacy, or you can have great privacy at the cost of security. And so where do you strike the balance? I can't at this moment think of a solution to that problem. Certainly no sort of wide-reaching solution that the government could uh, somehow come in and, and solve it for us. I do think that the uh, the government has some work to do to try to improve the basic architecture of the internet as we know it today. But that is also a bigger than a breadbasket issue exponentially <laughs> because to to propose that we change the architecture of the internet is it's so it's so unfathomable that it, it just it's not even it's not even really on the table as a meaningful fix. To the problem, but certainly the problem started uh, with the architecture that we are living with today. It's, it's in really interesting, Adam, that you make that particular point because the current book project that I'm working on is The Rise of the Digital Mob, which is trying to understand how the internet and other communication tools basically got us to where we are today. And as it happens, I'm in the throes of looking at those early architecture decisions. And, you know, it's to, to trot out another analogy, you know, government is a blunt instrument, right? And there are times when you need a blunt instrument, when you're, you know, digging a trench or you're knocking down a building, you use a sledgehammer for a reason, but there's a lot of finish work 
which takes place at the corporate and the individual level that government shouldn't be involved in. I, I completely agree with that. That, I think, is probably the transition to the, the last kind of major topic for us to kick around, which is, you know, you're working at the corporate level. What thoughts do you have about, about parents and kids? What are the things that they should be doing to try to better protect themselves? One thing I try to recommend to my kids, whether or not they listen to me is a different, different issue, but uh, it's the notion of discretion. And to know when to say something and when not to say something. And I say that metaphorically by by say, quote unquote, that could mean taking a pic of themselves and then posting it online or making some utterance on Twitter or, uh, you know, of Instagram or or something of that nature. I think that discretion uh, we're losing to, to some degree. I try to teach my kids one idea and whether or not they listen to me is it, but that the idea is discretion. The idea of discretion is to make reasoned choices on what sort of utterances you make, what sort of pictures you take, with whom you share that information with, on what platform you share that with. My sense is that the immediacy of social media gets us into trouble. The fact that it's easy to use means that we're going to slip up because frankly, we're all a bunch of dumb humans and we're going to make mistakes constantly. And when we have a tool in front of us that can, that can act instantaneously, and we don't, even have, we don't even have a millisecond to think about it, that'll get us into trouble. And so this combination of, of the instantaneous component of social media and the fact that you have kids that for, perhaps aren't thinking of the long game Uh, What that means to me is that parents uh, ought to revisit the virtue of discretion and of thinking carefully before uttering or sharing or disclosing. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. All righty, folks. That wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cyber security, today's topic, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you've enjoyed the show and we'll share it with your friends and colleagues. If you have a question or wanna reach out to us for topic suggestions, please do so. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. If you're still listening, you must have loved this episode like I did. And if that's the case, please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service of choice. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, 
check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.